0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Greece, Episode 2, Sailing the Paleolithic Mediterranean. In this episode, we will discuss a topic hardly ever covered in books or classes on Greek history – the Early Stone Age. This means we are looking at evidence of human occupation in Greece from before farming came to Greece, about 9,000 years ago. Since the era that we will be discussing also predates the first systems of writing by many thousands of years – Today's episode relies purely on archaeological data, specifically under the purview of paleoanthropology, the branch of archaeology and anthropology that studies the evidence of human evolution. Paleoanthropology's focus extends in time from the common ancestors of all human and ape lineages approximately 20 million years ago, through the split between the lineage of humans and chimpanzees, who are our closest living ape relatives, estimated anywhere from 4 to 13 million years ago, all the way to the emergence and development of anatomically modern humans, the species Homo sapiens. Paleoanthropologists consider the physical remains, bones and fossilized bones, as well as the artifacts, stone tools, and the environment, geography, geology, botanical remains, etc., of the species that sit on and diverge from the human family tree. In the last 15 years, New discoveries have completely revolutionized our understanding of the fossil record. The sequencing of the Neanderthal and Denisovan genomes, as well as the discovery of new species like Homo floresiensis and Homo naledi, has radically changed our understanding of the human family tree. Greece has produced a share of finds that have contributed to our rapidly expanding picture of early human activity. Despite all this current excitement in the world of paleoanthropology, a question remains. Is it really important to examine this period in Greek history? I think so. Although archaeology of the Greek Paleolithic and Mesolithic, the Old and Middle Stone Ages respectively, has been overshadowed and underfunded because of the immense allure and abundance of material and textual data that appear in Greece from other eras, these two periods provide an incredibly rich part of the human story. Even though the Greek language, which classical era Greeks saw as their defining characteristic, came to Greece much later, the earliest waves of human migration into Greece are exciting in themselves as well as for the light that they shed on later eras. Cyprian Broodbank, a professor of archaeology at Cambridge University, spends about 130 pages of his recent book, The Making of the Middle Sea, discussing the Stone Age in the Mediterranean. Most scholars who advocate for understanding the Stone Age in Greece concentrate their attention on its latest period, the Neolithic, When farming and polished stone tools appeared in Greece. However, Broodbank is interested in the whole swath of time, from the earliest evidence of humans in the Mediterranean until the end of the Neolithic. He gives three reasons for his interest in this era and its importance. First, he claims that the Stone Age, quote, was an intrinsically exciting period of incredible human creativity within dramatically changing physical surroundings, Involving the emergence of our own species and its cognitive powers, the origins and expansion of farming, navigation and trade, the rise and fall of towns and states, the appearance of new technologies, consumption habits, ideologies, and politics. Quote. In this episode, we'll be dealing specifically with the earliest evidence of navigation and trade, which can be traced farther back than paleoanthropologists ever expected. Broodbank's second reason to study the Stone Age is that these early people laid the framework for some of the features of the world we recognize. Quote, Among this welter of developments, many of the fundamentals underlying the classical and later Mediterranean in fact emerged and proliferated, offering the prospect of fresh and sometimes startling perspectives on the extensively familiar. End quote. Third, Bridbank argues that many of the artifacts of these early eras remain powerful symbols today. Quote, Millions of people now living in and beyond the Mediterranean regard its early relics and their associations as things that matter powerfully today. This remote history reverberates in the present, and sometimes passionately so, and getting it as right as we can is therefore a serious responsibility. End quote. Broodbank's three reasons provide some justification for beginning the podcast at such an early date, and I hope that you'll bear with me, as over the course of the next few episodes we explore the Stone Age. In this episode, we'll consider some of the discoveries in the last 10 years that have brought Crete into the forefront of the study of early advances in human technology and navigation. During this discussion, I will attempt to provide sufficient background in paleoanthropology for understanding the evidence from Crete. I will close the episode with some of my justifications for including the Stone Age in this podcast. Crete, in ancient Greek Krete, and in modern Greek Kriti, is a large island to the southeast of Greece in the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea, in ancient Greek Aegios Pelagos, and in modern Greek Aegeo Pelagos, may have been named after Aegeus, the father of the Greek hero Theseus, whom we will discuss in later episodes. The Aegean is an embayed section of the Mediterranean, flanked by Greece in the west and Turkey in the east. This sea was originally formed by differential sinking of parts of the Alpine Arc, which is part of a group of small tectonic plates that sits on the highly dynamic area between the African Plate in the south and the Eurasian Plate in the north. This explains the rocky appearance of the Aegean Islands, since, long in the geological past, they were the ridges of mountains. Crete lies in the very south of the Aegean, where it sits approximately 85 miles from the southernmost tip of the Greek mainland, and a similar distance from the coast of North Africa. The Plakias Survey Project, which conducted two seasons of archaeological survey on the southwestern coast of Crete in 2008 and 2009, discovered the first concrete evidence of Paleolithic human occupation in Crete. This occupation dates from at least 130,000 years ago, And, given the form of the stone tools found, the occupation was probably much, much older. So why are these finds so striking? Well, when I say human occupation, I'm being somewhat broad in my use of the term human. I use the term not only to refer to anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens, but also other species of the genus Homo. The most famous of these species is Homo neanderthalensis, more commonly known as Neanderthals. As many of you may recall from science or history classes, Homo sapiens did not leave Africa until about 100,000 years ago, and recent estimates place their entrance into Europe about 45,000 years ago. Since the evidence of human occupation comes from, at the very least, 85,000 years earlier than current estimated arrival of Homo sapiens on the European continent, This means that the humans in question must have been some other species. The current publications of the survey data do not posit which human species is responsible for creating the artifacts found by the Plakia survey team. Since there are no fossilized remains of the stone toolmakers, at least none that have been found so far, it's impossible to conclusively pinpoint the species that left the tools behind. However, elsewhere in Greece there are fossil remains that indicate a possible candidate for the toolmaker. The most famous of these is a skull found in Petrolona, Greece that recent assessments date to somewhere between 350,000 and 150,000 years ago, and classify as a member of the species Homo heidelbergensis. Since the stone tools on Crete probably came from about the same date range as the Petrolona skull, and because the tools appear to be those of a type associated with Homo heidelbergensis elsewhere in Europe, we can tentatively identify the Cretan toolmaker as a member of the species Homo heidelbergensis as well. Since I will be using the name Homo heidelbergensis a lot in this episode, for the sake of ease, from here on out in the episode I will refer to the species as Homo heidelbergensis and the members of the species as heidelbergensis in the singular and heidelbergensis in the plural. Homo heidelbergensis, unlike Neanderthal, isn't exactly a household name, This discrepancy in popularity stems primarily from a difference in the amount of archaeological evidence of each species. The first Neanderthal skeleton was found in 1856 in the Neander Valley and quickly became the popular image of the caveman. To date, remains have been found of at least 500 Neanderthal individuals, and we know a lot about them. Like Neanderthals, Heidelbergenses were first discovered in Germany. A workman and a sandpit at Mauer near Heidelberg found the first remains of a Heidelbergensis jaw in 1907. Since then, a small collection of finds united under this name, including the Petrolonus skull, have been discovered. Homo heidelbergensis seems to be a species that fits in the family tree between Homo erectus and Neanderthals. It appears that Homo heidelbergensis lived in both Europe and in Africa, Although the African fossils are sometimes classified as Homo rudisiensis, Homo heidelbergensis/slash may have been the last common ancestor of both humans and Neanderthals. Some paleontologists believe that the group that remained in Africa evolved into Homo sapiens, while the group that spread into Europe evolved into Neanderthals. Homo heidelbergensis probably evolved around 600,000 years ago and inhabited Europe until it evolved into Neanderthals sometime around 200,000 years ago. Since Neanderthals are our prototypical cavemen, we might likely assume that their ancestors, Heidelbergenses, would be even more primitive. However, the evidence of human occupation on Crete is one of the most recent and most important in a series of discoveries that reveal early human species to be less primitive than we originally thought. These Heidelbergenses, or whatever they were, obviously possessed the physical skills and cognitive capacities to build vessels that not only could survive a journey over open sea, but also navigate to shore on the rocky islands of the Aegean. So how do we know that these early humans came to Crete on watercraft? Wood and other materials that might have been used to construct boats or rafts rarely, if ever, survive so long in the archaeological record. Thus, the surveys do not find remnants of the vessels. However, we do know that humans must have used rafts in order to travel to Crete, because, despite the fluctuations in the sea level over the millennia, Crete has not been connected by a land bridge to any landmass for more than 5 million years. The only ways, then, that humans could have arrived there was either by some sort of vessel, a vegetation raft, or by swimming. Vegetation rafts are probably responsible for much of the transfer of fauna between islands in tropical places like Indonesia. These so called rafts are really just large, dense tangles of vegetation that end up floating in the ocean, transporting animals atop them. However, the Mediterranean climate is not conducive to vegetation rafts, and so this is an unlikely mode of transport for ancient humans. But why do we rule out the possibility of swimming? Consider it in these terms the modern swim competition that spans the greatest distance is the Eight Bridges Hudson River Swim, it's 120 miles long. However, Only six swimmers have ever completed this seven-stage, seven-day race in the week allotted for it. While the current distance of Crete from Greece or North Africa is only about two-thirds of the eight bridges race, and it's likely that it would have been considerably shorter due to lower sea levels during the period in which Heidelbergensis made the crossing, it would still have been a formidable distance, even with the islands scattered around Crete. Curtis Runnels, a professor of archaeology at Boston University and one of the members of the Plakia Stone Age Project, estimates, based on geological data and ocean levels, that in the Paleolithic, crossing from the land surrounding the Aegean to Crete would have involved two or more crossings of somewhere between 10 and 25 kilometers, or very roughly between 6 and 16 miles. For context, 10 kilometers and above is considered a marathon swim, by today's standards, and requires months of daily training. So it's pretty hard to imagine that a set of Heidelbergenses, who hunted and gathered to survive, would have wanted to expend the energy on a long swim over open water, especially since they would have had no idea where they were going and what the tides were like. Moreover, they would have likely been ignorant of where and how frequently they would have been able to crawl ashore on the rocky islands, and whether there would have been sufficient food when they arrived. Also, the currents and winds, even on small distances of this part of the Aegean, tend to be treacherous. Another hint that this crossing would have been especially difficult has to do with the animal species whose remains we find on Crete from this period. If the crossing were short or easy, we would expect to see the same fauna on Crete as the largest close landmasses. However, Crete's animals are distinct. Many of them are much smaller than their mainland counterparts, which means they were not subject to the same large predators that they would have been on the mainland. Given all of these factors, it's far more plausible that Paleolithic human occupants of Crete would have arrived on some kind of vessel rather than by swimming. How advanced were these vessels? Well, it's difficult to say, but they were probably crude. When I say vessels, you might conjure the image of a boat. We cannot know what the crafts were actually like, but my guess is that these vessels might charitably be described as rafts. I imagine that Heidelbergenses were making the hop from Greece or North Africa to Crete on something like modified logs, holding one or two people. Yet intentional assisted floating, even in a rudimentary form, is something noteworthy at this period in human evolution, especially since paleoanthropologists have assumed, up until these recent finds, that humans couldn't cross large bodies of water before about 10,000 years ago. However, some of the experts who work closely with this material are far less conservative in their estimates of the sophistication of these vessels than I am. Runnels, who was part of the Plaquias team, contends that watercraft were more advanced and... Given his experience of decades in the field and his close work with the tools from Crete, as well as Paleolithic tools from all over Greece, chances are he's correct. Reynolds argues, in fact, that the difficult and, quote, dangerous currents and winds, end quote, would necessitate that Heidelbergenses had some control over their crafts. He suggests a number of options for these controls, including, quote, centerboards, steering oars, paddles, or perhaps even sails, end quote and he goes on to claim that the crafts would have needed to carry several people. While Reynolds' claims about the sophistication of the vessels are certainly contrary to prevailing orthodoxy about the cognitive capacities of archaic humans, these claims are persuasive. Reynolds suggests that vessels must have carried several people because he conceives of the group that made the voyage as a hunting party. He does not elaborate in the article, but I assume that he draws this inference from the fact that Hedoburgensis and other archaic humans were hunter-gatherers, and it makes sense that they would venture into the wider world in groups to look for new hunting grounds and more readily available prey. Moreover, even if they were the savvy seafarers that Reynolds pictures, they probably wanted to travel as a group on a single craft to decrease the possibilities of separation on the voyage. To play devil's advocate to Reynolds' claims about the advanced nature of the watercraft, there are a number of other possibilities which would not require such sophisticated vessels. Hunting parties could have taken the risk of separation and traveled on smaller, cruder rafts. Alternatively, the remains found on Crete might be the work of single persons, who over the years ended up on Crete because they were hardy explorers or antisocial loners. Or imagine the early Cretan inhabitants were a couple or a few friends that were ostracized from their social group that decided to restart their lives in a new place. This may seem like I'm pushing Homo sapien social standards onto Homo heidelbergensis, but there is evidence of loner behavior as well as ostracism and shunning behavior even among primates. So archaic human social dynamics probably also involved these behaviors. No matter how sophisticated the watercraft were, everyone agrees that whoever arrived on Crete during the Paleolithic, and for whatever reason they ventured out into the Aegean, they didn't immediately move on they stayed long enough to fashion out of Cretan quartz at least the few hundred tools that the Placia survey found in 2008 and 2009. Some of you out there might still be wondering why making rafts is so impressive. We know that Heidelbergenses were anatomically similar to modern humans. In fact, Homo Heidelbergenses lived around the right time to be the last common ancestor between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. And even though our Homo sapiens lineage diverged from Neanderthals between about 400,000 and 250,000 years ago, we know that Neanderthals were similar enough to anatomically modern humans to produce hybrid offspring that were fertile. Today's humans, living outside Africa, share genes with Neanderthals beyond those genes which come from a common ancestor. In fact, the average person of European or Asian descent acquired between 1 and 5% of their DNA from their ancestors' crossbreeding with Neanderthals. So it may not seem implausible that Heidelbergenses could make rafts, since probably the majority of modern adults could construct a rudimentary raft under duress. However, you have to consider that there are two things that we would assume would stand in the way of Heidelbergenses' capacity to complete such a project. One, extremely primitive tools, and two, limited cognitive abilities in comparison with anatomically modern humans. Let's talk about the tools first. The stone tools found on Crete come from a time known as the Lower Paleolithic. The phrase Lower Paleolithic may not sound like it means much, but it provides ample information about both the date and the available technology. The Stone Age, like the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, is named after the primary medium of its tools, namely stone. The Stone Age is divided into three segments, the Paleolithic, Old Stone Age, the Mesolithic, Middle Stone Age, and the Neolithic, New Stone Age. The lithic suffix comes from the ancient Greek word lithos, which means stone. Each of these ages are subdivided into lower, middle, and upper. Lower refers to the farthest in the past, while upper refers to the time period closest to the present. So, the Lower Paleolithic is the subdivision furthest in the past of the Lithic Ages. Generally, paleoanthropologists agree that the Paleolithic began in Africa around 2.5 million years ago, once we find the first evidence of a stone tool tradition, and ended approximately 10,000 years ago. Within that, in Africa, the Paleolithic was divided into Lower, between the beginning of the stone tool manufacture and about 300,000 years ago, Middle, from about 300,000 years ago until about 45,000 years ago, and upper, from about 45,000 years ago to about 10,000 years ago. Now here's the part that's simultaneously confusing and helpful. Although the terms connect roughly to these dates based on paleoanthropological discoveries in Africa, they don't necessarily connect to the same dates elsewhere. In Greece, according to Runnels, although the dates are in no way certain, The general consensus is that the Lower Paleolithic begins about 781,000 years ago, ending somewhere around 126,000 years ago, and the Middle Paleolithic lasts from about 126,000 years ago to about 28,000 years ago. The Upper Paleolithic begins about 28,000 years ago. These dates are different from the African dates because the technological change came to or developed in Greece more slowly than it did on the African continent. Thus, while the term does not necessarily connect one to a date without knowing the region, it does provide one with the information about the level and type of stone technology that the people in that era used. As one moves forward in time, the difference in the dates that circumscribe various periods changes more dramatically by region, because stone industries and other technological advancements, like agriculture, appeared and caught on in different places at different times. These broad distinctions of lower, middle, and upper set the stage for the finer distinctions about the way that the stone tools were manufactured. In paleoanthropology, they usually refer to the classes of stone tools based on these manufacturing procedures as industries. This term is illuminating because it reminds us that there were traditions and history that governed the production of tools in any given area. So, an entire band of humans would make the same type of tools because they would use a set of techniques passed from one person to another. The very first and crudest stone tools are known as Oldowan tools. The very earliest instance of stone tools came from Gona, Ethiopia. However, the tools are called Oldowan because this stone industry was first discovered in Olduvai Gorge, Tanzania. Sometimes, they are known as pebble core assemblages, since they are made out of very slightly modified stones or pebbles. The tools are nothing more than rocks, which archaic humans hit against other rocks to break off pieces, so that the tool would have a sharp edge. There are traces of pebble core assemblages in Greece that may be the evidence of the earliest of the archaic human dispersals into Europe. The next stone tool industry, which also belongs to the Lower Paleolithic, is Acheulean. Acheulean tools are made from the same type of stone as one tools, often quartz, but show clearer signs of human effort than Oldowan tools. These tools are bifacially flaked, meaning pieces of the stone have been removed from both sides to hone sharp edges. Also, these Acheulean tools appear in a wider variety of shapes, and are more clearly differentiated by function. These shapes are honed through percussion. Essentially, humans hit their rock cores, those rocks that they wanted to turn into tools, with other rocks, in order to flake off portions and create the shapes they needed. The placius project has tentatively classified the lower Paleolithic tools they found as acheulean like These tools are made out of local Cretan quartz, which means they were made on the island itself rather than brought there by travelers. These quartz tools represent a number of different tool types, from scrapers, which might be used to scrape animal hides clean, to cleavers, which might be used to cut meat. The quartz was not particularly high quality. The team describes it as, quote, opaque, dull, and blocky, end quote. To an untrained eye, like mine, the tools look extremely crude, almost like something children would make by hitting rocks together and breaking them into pieces. But they're also rather beautiful. Although the quartz isn't lustrous or polished, the whitish-gray stone is veined by thin, dark lines, and it looks especially striking, against the stark black background in the team's photographs. It makes me wonder whether Heidelborgenses who made these and used them thought of them as aesthetic objects, as I do, or whether they regarded them in the same way that I do my kitchen knives, simply tools for getting things done. While well, at this early date, and with such limited evidence, it's impossible to peer inside the minds of the toolmakers, we will discuss current debates over the archaeological evidence of aesthetic tastes in later episodes. Let me describe one of the objects in a little more detail, a hand axe. For those of you who have gotten your hands on Strasser and his team's 2010 article, it's figure 34 on page 180. Please be aware, I haven't seen this object in person. I'm describing it from four photographs in the article, so forgive me if I don't do a perfect job. Hand axes are mysterious objects. Paleoanthropologists are still not entirely sure what their purpose was, but they're almost ubiquitous at Ashley and Fine sites. For those of you who have never seen one, imagine the shape this way. Take a wide, flat, oval-shaped river rock. Then imagine that you want to cut it in half with a diagonal line such that it retains its oval shape when looking at it from the top or the bottom, but it comes to a thin, sharp edge on one side of the oval and a thick, rounded edge on the other. The thought is that the thick, rounded edge provided a place to grip the hand axe, hence the name hand axe, and the other side formed a round cutting edge. The quartz tool found by the Plaquias team isn't smooth like a river rock would be. It's pitted and uneven. Yet, the hand axe has this unmistakable shape. The photographs in the article show that on two sides, which I will term the top and the bottom of the hand axe, it looks like an oval with a dent in it, while what I will term the front and back of the stone form triangles, the thick side forming the grip and the point of the triangle forming the cutting edge. The hand axe doesn't look very sharp but it may have been dulled over the years by natural forces, or it simply may have been used as a blunt tool. Like the other lower paleolithic tools pictured, the hand axe is made of a grayish white stone and is covered in tiny dark veins. Gazing at this tool, I'm amazed that early humans were able to fashion watercraft, even of a rudimentary sort. I can't fathom trying to break a tree branch or hack into a log with something like this. On the other hand, back in 1969, the US landed astronauts on the moon with computers that, combined, had significantly less computing power and memory than I have in my smartphone. Human ingenuity is truly amazing. So maybe Runnels is right. Maybe Heidelbergenses were able to build watercraft big enough to hold an entire hunting party, and that were steerable with centerboards or sails. Let's hope more evidence turns up in the future that allows us to put these theories to the test. Now, Let us turn to the second part of what makes assisted floating so fascinating, the cognitive abilities of Heidelbergensis. Let me say up front that there are simply not enough fossil remains of Homo heidelbergensis specimens to make an accurate assessment of their mental acuity. Yet, we can draw certain inferences. As I mentioned earlier, Homo heidelbergensis was an ancestor of the Neanderthals, We know that the term Neanderthal has come into English to mean somebody who is uncouth or caveman-like. In the common imagination, we think of Neanderthals as strong and stocky, but mentally and behaviorally unsophisticated. Neanderthals are portrayed this way partially because, when they were first discovered, phrenology was still considered a science. For those of you who haven't heard of phrenology, it was the supposition that the size and shape of the human cranium could indicate a person's character and their moral and mental abilities. We now know that the shape of the human cranium divulges no such secrets. But, back in 1856, phrenology was still considered to be a legitimate branch of psychology. When the first Neanderthal skull was unearthed, scientists assumed that it was a human deformed from disease. However, In 1864, a British geologist named William King argued that it was an extinct species of human. He also argued that the shape of the Neanderthal skull indicated that Neanderthals were savage, stupid, and lacked morals. While phrenology has disappeared from science, this prejudice about Neanderthals has remained. However, many finds over the last few decades have radically altered this picture. We now know that Neanderthals took care of some of the sick and injured members of their clans, because we have skeletons that show Neanderthals who lost limbs long before death, as well as those who lacked teeth for many years before their demise, which means that Neanderthals must have helped one another, and, at least to some extent, cared for the maimed and the aged. We also have evidence of Neanderthal graves, showing that they buried their dead, at least some of the time. They also made art. In their own way, because we have evidence of crayons made of natural minerals and collections of shells with holes in them that might have been strung on necklaces or attached to clothing. Most importantly of all, perhaps, a few Neanderthal skeletons have preserved enough of the bones surrounding the throat and the ear that we can posit with some confidence that Neanderthals were able to speak. John Muallam, a contributing journalist for the New York Times Magazine, points out in his article, Neanderthals Were People Too, that our current scientific evidence, quote, suggests that they probably had high-pitched, raspy voices, like Julia Child, end quote. While Neanderthals were surely more advanced than their earlier relatives, Heidelbergensis, perhaps our assessments are overly colored by prejudice. My skepticism about the sophistication of the watercraft Heidelbergensis used to sail to Crete may be a result of this bias. Long before Homo Heidelbergensis evolved, back 1.8 million years ago, Homo erectus made it all the way to Dmanisi Cave, which is in Georgia, just north of the Armenian border. We are finding evidence all the time that forces us to change our views and admit that these archaic humans were much more like us than we ever imagined. However, we shouldn't get too carried away. The tools that Heidelbergensis employed were still extremely crude, which probably means that they were unable to conceive of or create better methods of tool manufacture. So perhaps we can assume that Heidelbergenses had language, the ability to learn and teach effectively, and basic problem-solving skills, but less of the ability for abstract thought and less attention to detail than their more recent counterparts. In the last episode, I said I would use my episodes on the Stone Age to explain why Greece was so attractive, So why did Heidelbergenses, or whichever early humans arrived on Crete, want to go there? Well, as I mentioned when I discussed their vessels, humans weren't exactly carrying advanced navigational equipment, so it's unlikely they had a good idea where they were going. In fact, according to J.A.J. Gowlett, professor of archaeology and evolutionary anthropology at the University of Liverpool, early human expansion out into more northerly places, like Greece, may have just been because any species will expand geographically to the limits of its success. And it appears that humans succeeded on Crete. They certainly stayed there for long enough to make stone tools out of local stone. Yet, the hypothesis that humans only came to and stayed on Crete because they could is a little dissatisfying. There were some things about Crete specifically that might have been attractive to ancient humans who arrived there. First, during the various ice ages in the past, Greece, especially southern Greece, would have been much warmer than northern Europe. We will talk more about the specifics of climate in later episodes, but this warmth would have meant that Greece was a relatively welcoming environment. Second, Crete itself would have been a particularly desirable place for humans. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, Crete had island-adapted fauna. This means that large game animals were smaller than they would have been on the mainland, Large herbivores shrink on islands for two reasons. One, because there is less space to graze, so smaller animals survive better on the more limited food supply. But two, because they don't have to stay large to protect themselves from large predators. These two factors make islands extremely attractive for human colonization. Humans, who were essentially predators, could prey on the game animals more easily because they were smaller, but also did not have to worry about becoming prey themselves for other large carnivores. Third, it is possible that there was an aesthetic draw. Greece and the Aegean are stunningly beautiful. Although I have never gotten a chance to travel to Crete myself, according to my friends who have had the opportunity, Crete is exquisite. We don't know whether Hedalborgenses had an aesthetic sense, although there is some evidence of art among Neanderthals, their descendants, but if they did, Perhaps they settled on Crete, at least partially, for its natural charms. Since this episode was not particularly linear, I'll give a brief recap of the information covered in chronological order. The ancestors of humans broke off from the lineage of the majority of apes around 20 million years ago, and separated from the family tree of our closest living ancestors, chimpanzees, between 7 and 16 million years later. The genus Homo, our genus, emerged about 2 to 3 million years ago. As the Homo genus became more advanced and intelligent, members of the genus began to expand out of Africa into the Middle East and Europe. The earliest evidence of the genus Homo in Europe is a collection of diminutive Homo erectus in Diminisi, Georgia, about 1.8 million years ago. The earliest evidence of ancient humans in the Mediterranean region on the African side is from about 1.8 million years ago, near Ain Hanek in Algeria, and then the earliest evidence in the Levant is from about 1.5 million years ago, at Ubadiah in Jordan. After that, according to Broodbank, there is sporadic evidence of Homo erectus and Homo heterogensis in various places around the Mediterranean until about half a million years ago, when there is a great proliferation of sites in the Mediterranean region. Runnels, on the other hand, thinks that the major dispersal was about 1 million years ago. I tend to agree with Reynolds about the earlier spread of human species, and I hope that more finds will surface over the next few years that will further bear out this hypothesis. Either way, by at least 500,000 years ago, scholars agree that populations of ancient humans, probably Heidelbergenses, were inhabiting the Mediterranean region permanently. Heidelbergenses left behind Asherlian tools in the Mediterranean, as well as a few tantalizing pieces of fossil evidence. The Petrolona skull comes from sometime after this period of population explosion, somewhere about 350,000 to 150,000 years ago. The Achillean tools found on Crete by the Plachia Stone Age project also probably date from that period. Consequently, the expansion of Hedalborgensis into Europe on a large scale probably corresponds with the earliest period of Mediterranean sea travel, Sometime after this, maybe about 200,000 years ago, maybe later, Neanderthals evolved in Europe. Homo sapiens evolved in Africa somewhere around the same time. We will deal with these two species in later episodes. I spent time in this episode giving the background for understanding the earlier and less discussed part of the Stone Age in Greece. This I hope illuminated why the discoveries made by the Plakias Stone Age project are important. Essentially, These discoveries provide clear evidence that lower Paleolithic people, probably Heidelbergenses, had the cognitive and technical skills to figure out how to move themselves across open sea to the island of Crete via watercraft, either rudimentary rafts or more sophisticated vessels, and then use the local resources to survive for some time. However, I spent very little time giving you a sense of what life would have been like for these early humans. In the next episode, We will move to some sites that have been more thoroughly investigated, so I can fill in some of the details and provide a richer picture of what life might have been like in the Paleolithic. To conclude, I want to explain why I decided to begin with paleoanthropology, instead of something like the way the Greeks represented their distant past through mythology. There are a few primary reasons. First, unlike the Romans, the Greeks did not have a single version of their own history of the population of the land. Each city had its own set of foundation myths, and there were a few different versions of the story of the population of Greece, or the creation of humans, but there was no general outline of a story about how the Greeks as a people came to be. Second, the Greek mythic corpus is amorphous, wide ranging, contradictory, and unable to be unified. I will, of course, reference Greek myths during the course of this podcast, and they do shed light on the foundations of a number of different cities and institutions. However, one can piece together no unified mythological history. Third, to my mind, the archaeology is fascinating, not only because it provides us with information about humanity long before there's any kind of symbolic, oral, or written tradition, but also because the archaeological evidence found in Greece, broadly conceived, adds something new and important to our understanding of human evolution, as well as the rapidly changing field of paleoanthropology. And... As the recent finds on Crete demonstrate, the story continues to evolve. As a classicist, I hear a lot of criticism about the narrowness of the classical canon. Classics tends to focus on Greece and Rome, rather than Egypt and the Middle East, which provided the foundations for these societies. Greek history is often conceived of as fundamentally Western, since the classics were mandatory education for those cultures which perpetrated Western imperialism. However, this early material provides Greek history with a chance to break away from some of the cultural baggage it has accrued over the years, and really contribute to the global project of understanding human evolution on a broad scale. The evidence from the Placius Project provides a helpful comparison with the finds on Sulawesi and other Indonesian islands that show early evidence of seafaring. Stone Age finds used to frequently trigger certain nationalist sentiments. For example, in the early 20th century, many British paleoanthropologists rallied around the Piltdown fossil and ignored the indications it was a hoax because it provided potential evidence that the most advanced archaic humans lived in Britain. However, these days, paleoanthropology is a discipline that engages evidence from all over the globe and seems to have eschewed these pernicious ideological influences. Hopefully, these recent finds on Crete will help engage those interested in the classics and the history of Greece, and induce them to make connections to the global and fundamentally human puzzle of reconstructing the early history of our species. And given the rapidly changing face of the field, this is the perfect time to incorporate Greece into the paleoanthropological picture of the world. In this episode, I spent some time giving a basic outline of the early stone age in Europe, While I skated over a lot of the controversies in the process for details, see the script footnotes, I hope my brief overview provided a groundwork to understand why the Lower Paleolithic evidence on Crete, discovered by the Placchia Stone Age project, is so important. These discoveries provide proof that archaic humans of the Lower Paleolithic, probably Heidelbergenses, Had the cognitive capacity and technical skills to create watercraft that allowed them to reach Crete from Greece, North Africa, or Turkey. Not only did they make it to the island, but they used local resources to survive there for some time. In the next episode, I'm going to try to paint a picture of what life was like in the Paleolithic in Greece. In order to do so, I will look at some of the sites that have been studied more extensively than the Cretan coast, so that we can see a richer and more detailed picture of life in this period. So join me next time to find out what Paleolithic life was like on the mainland.